A Mouthful of Air, a poetry podcast with Mark McGuinness. Bede's Sparrow by Isabel Dixon A sparrow flits through the hall, its hubbub of feasting men, the meaty, fuggy smoke of them. A spell of warmth and hearth, post to post, high perch, a crossbeam bird's eye view, head cocked to reckon it, the mead hall din below. Jocular glut, jostling stories, battle talk and rut. Crumbs among the rushes, toppled cup, the hanging cauldron's heat. Mark the sparrow's pause, now the slanting rain it tumbled from has ceased to beat. This quieting, breath upon a pipe, the click of deer horn dice. Sky suff, a sigh of flakes upon the thatch. Hound yawn, haunch twitch in the fire's glow. A fan of feathers, wing flex, flight. Bird blink, up and out into the night. The mystery and purity of snow. Isabel, where did this poem come from? (laughs) Where did this poem come from? Um, I guess it came from the birds and from the venerable bead. Mm -hmm. It came from my study, surrounded by books and with my head in the computer during the spring of 2021, during the lockdown times. Mm-hmm. And it came also from echoes of my father's study back in South Africa and his book of the ecclesiastical history of the English people by oh. the Anglo Saxon scholar and monk, um, the Venerable Bede. Uh, my father was a science teacher from Scotland, but also um, ordained as a minister, and he went to South Africa both to teach and to be dean of, he became eventually dean of the cathedral in Amtata Mm -hmm. on the east coast of South Africa. And he was fascinated 
by the history of the missions, the mission stations. And for years, I looked at the spine of the book by the Venerable Bede, and I didn't really know anything more than that he was a scholar and a monk. Mm -hmm. I came back to the Venerable Bede via D.H. Lawrence, uh, and D.H. Lawrence has been a complex fascination for me for a long time. I came to Lawrence first via his poetry, wonderful poem, Snake, mm-hmm. his poem about bats. And as I wrote my own poems, largely in the beginning, really about nature and love, but always throughout all my writing, I write about nature. I, I learned more about other things that Lawrence had written but it was only during lockdown that I read The Rainbow and I was fascinated by how much nature there is in his prose as well, something I'd never noticed before, how yeah. beautiful his nature descriptions are. And The Rainbow ends with a scene in which he quotes the simile of the sparrow by the venerable Bede, which is the scene that I've recreated in Bede's Sparrow. You have a hall full of uh, men in medieval times, which for me felt a bit like a scene from uh, Gawain and the Green Knight, mm-hmm. yeah. which I studied in my first year at university. This very medieval feasting scene, snow falling outside, and this sparrow flying in through one door, pausing a while and then flying out the other, which is meant to speak to the transitoriness of life and a question of a search for spiritual significance. Mm-hmm. And it was just such a striking, striking scene to me, which strangely I only read via reading The Rainbow and then reading a an, an scholarly essay from 1947 online on JSTOR about The Rainbow and about uh-huh. the sparrow and the nature imagery. And then I just had to write my own version. It's sometimes happens, I think, as a poet, that you yeah. something strikes you and you want to reinterpret it. Yeah, it's, it's like you're answering back or, or continuing the conversation. Um, yeah, you sent me scurrying to the internet because I remember the end of the rainbow, I remember the horses, but I'd completely forgotten about the sparrow. So, I so went did you back. see, yeah, did you go back? I went back and had a look and there it is. And yeah, indeed. In, indeed it is. And it's such a an amazing, unforgettable, well, I, I forgot it. <laughs> but it, I'd forgotten it was in the rainbow. But I did remember it from Anglo-Saxon studies, that just that image of life, that it's just like passing through the mead hall and we don't know what's before or after. It's, it's really extraordinary. Um, and you've captured it absolutely beautifully in this poem. Um, and your sparrow has migrated a long way, hasn't it, from Scotland to South Africa and back? Yes, but there's sparrows everywhere. Fewer sparrows here, of course, than there used to be, which is mm-hmm. sad. Um, I think sparrows were much more numerous. They would have literally been, you know, large flocks of them at times. We don't see here. I think when I've been to Italy, where D.H. Lawrence, of course, spent time as well, I see many more sparrows hopping mm-hmm. around um, than I've seen um, here. You, you couldn't possibly remember all the nature 
comparisons and metaphors mm-hmm. that he uses. So that scene where Ursula walks through the forest and she goes into the forest and out the other side before the horses, which he compares to the sparrow going in and out of the of the hall, that sort yeah. of transitory time. It's also about rebirth. You know, it's about entering hmm. a new space. It's about a kind of renaissance in a way. Um, okay. And, and so, but what prompted you to write? about the sparrow. I mean, you, you remembered it, but how, how did you know this was going to be a poem? Well, I was at my desk. It was miserable grey time for all of us. Mm-hmm. I think there was that sense of where is this going? Yeah. You know, the meaning of the meaning of our lives, um, really big ex- existential questions. And I was you know, aware of time passing, being separated from people I loved in South Africa Mm -hmm. and or separated from people I loved all over the world. And it just spoke very, very clearly to me. I also saw at an archaeological site a simulation of what it would look like for the sparrow to fly through a mead hall like really? that. Perhaps I'll send you the link. Uh, oh yes, yeah, I'll put it in the show it. notes, folks. So pick, yes, I can send you. Yes, I can yeah. send you the the notes for that. And the um the the essay is uh, from nineteen forty nine. Actually, it was E. L. Nichols' essay, "The Simile of the Sparrow in the Rainbow" mm-hmm. by D. H. Lawrence. Then I saw. Then I was scurrying around the internet, you know, one thing leading to another and imagining that Beowulf-like banqueting scene, the idea of the soul's journey. Mm -hmm. And in the E.L. Nichols essay, Nichols mentioned a William Wordsworth poem and that was also retelling the story of the sparrow. So this is quite spooky. Mm -hmm. So... Because I was alerted to the in the Nichols essay to the mention in the rainbow, I was intrigued by uh, Lawrence talking about it. I then went to the Wordsworth sonnet, mm-hmm. and uh, it's called Persuasion, and it's in his ecclesiastical sonnets. Great, I will link and to this one as well. Link to this one, but then yeah. there's another excellent blog um, where uh, I think it's somebody called. Well, the, the blog was called, is called First Known When Lost. So the blog is called First Known When Lost. And an entry from 2015 was headed A Sparrow, A Fluttering Thing. Mm-hmm. It quoted the William Wordsworth Persuasion. But then I learned about a further poem by an American poet called Stephen Dubbins uh, called Where We Are exactly written around this this image. Now, I had already finished my poem by this stage. Oh, okay. And so when I got to the, the Dubbins poem, I felt suddenly, oh, no, this is a much <laughs> longer poem, and he's done exactly what I've done, but he did it before me. So when I got to the Stephen Dubbins poems, poem, I had already finished my bead sparrow, certainly in in a long first draft uh-huh. and then just tinkered with the form. So I was at first a little bit put out, as poets are when we find mm-hmm. we, yeah. we aren't the first to, exactly. to tread yeah. this ground. But then this actually happens a lot in, in 
all kinds of writing that the same themes inspire us. And I, yeah. I actually love the way that the the poems can be little time traveling capsules between poets and between writers of different forms. But I really, really found it incredibly spooky sitting there alone, isolated during lockdown. And this sparrow was flying between the beams of the Mead Hall, but between centuries, between yeah. Wordsworth and Lawrence, Stephen Dubbins, myself, between the blogger. And I, I just felt really touched by a kind of magic, really. Yeah. So for me, this poem has a magical feel mm. because it came as if by magic. I wrote it really fast, mm-hmm. but it's the coalescing of so many different things and so many writers' thoughts all the way back to the Venerable Bede telling telling this story, um, writing it down. What a lovely thought and a lovely image for poetry. You know, that's really how it, it happens. It gets handed down, or in this case, it flies from Mead Hall to Mead Hall, from poet to poet. Yeah, and and in different forms. Yeah, the, and it's the, always fresh. Everyone chooses a form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I will link to all of those so that, that readers can follow the trail. I guess another way of thinking about it is lineage, that it's gone mm-hmm. from Bede to Wordsworth to Lawrence um, and through to contemporary poets like you and Stephen Dubbins. Mm, I'm sure there's more out there. I'm sure that when you do your podcast, you're going to f- attract a few more birds flying across saying, well, I've got one. Well, maybe people could leave a comment. Leave a comment on the blog. Yeah. Let us yeah. know, and we will see where the see if we can map the sparrow's flight. So, okay. So, you had the your sparrow or the your sparrow visit. Hmm. How did the poem evolve? You know, where did how did it start, and how did it find the the form it's in now? So the poem started for me with the lines, the first three lines. A sparrow flits through the hall, its hubbub of feasting men, the meaty, fuggy smoke of them. So those words formed when I was thinking Mm -hmm. about the flight of the sparrow and seeing that simulation as well. And it is a very strange thing, isn't it? Why we need to write things down in our own words, how, how we need to retell something, even if it's just telling it to yourself, mm-hmm. just felt a real impulse to shape this for myself and think it through. It's a way of thinking things through about uh-huh. thinking yeah. deeply about things is writing for me. And I wanted to sort of hear this, the rain outside, you know, the, the noise down below, but the quiet for the bird above. Mm. Uh, I wanted uh, to imagine the, the dogs, you know, the, the hounds, the hound yawn, haunch twitch in the fire's glow. That moment, that cinematic moment, really. There's something very, very visual and cinematic, even about the original. Yeah. When I first wrote it, it just ran on all in one one block of text. It's quite a narrow block of text on the page, sort of running yep. down. 
But then I realized that it needed more space, that it needed more breath for the reader. I like mm -hmm. to think of how the reader reads it on the page or how it's heard spoken as well. Like yeah. when I write, I always speak to myself and speak the lines. Really? That, and I think we can hear that when you read it. It really, you could really hear all the, the rhythms and the stops and starts. And, and it's really intriguing to hear that, that that's part of your process. Because I know some poets don't do that. I remember hearing Simon Armitage talking about his translation of Gwen and the Green Knight. And he said when he recorded it for the audiobook or TV, he said that was the first time he'd ever spoken it aloud. And I thought, really? <laughs> you managed all of that? <laughs> Yeah, that's extraordinary to me. I, I always, sometimes the the spoken in my head words come first. I find I have the ideas for lines that that come upon me when I'm running or walking, mm -hmm. swimming, yeah, in the bath or washing dishes. There's something about motion and yes. water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trains and planes are marvelous too. So trains preferable, of course, but motion is, uh, is so important. And that motion and that rhythm of the movement for me comes into the words. I'm also, as a child, had a really, really terrible stammer. Mm -hmm. And I was very fortunate to have had a enlightened headmistress of our school who was very concerned with remedial work for speech and for reading. Mm -hmm. I had time away from classes when everyone else went to what we called PT, what you call PE. And in those days, we had to do needlework. I skipped those to have my speech les lessons. Speech lessons, I can't say uh -huh. it today. <laughs> and that was really helpful. And do you think that's helpful to you as a poet, that, that you had such a focus on speech? from such an early age? I mean, this is a whole different conversation, really, but there are a lot of poets with stammers. Hmm. And there are a lot of poets you wouldn't know had stammers and work around their stammers. But if you've stammered, you do recognize certain breathing patterns and ways of compensating. And I've had this conversation with several published poets around stammering, and there are poets who've written you know, openly about stammering too. I'd like to do a program about that sometime. But I think people with a stammer, people who stammer, there is often a real interest in words and there's a fascination with words. And I think I sometimes wittingly or unwittingly set myself quite difficult sequences of things to say in the poems. It's like Let's stretch the language. Let's make it as make it as acrobatic or interesting as possible. Acrobatic is a really great word, I think, to describe what you do throughout the collection. There's a real it's incredibly rich and agile and at times exuberant the way the poems leap around the page. I mean, in this one you've got you know, right from the beginning, the hubbub of feasting men, the meaty, fuggy smoke of them. I mean, that's the whole of the kind of the Beowulf feasting scenes in two lines, isn't it? 
<laughs> it's just you really want to be there with <laughs> I mean vegetarians turn away now, but you know, with all the meat and the smoke and the you know, it's it's that kind of coziness of being inside when all the elements are out there. And all the way through this poem, you've got alliteration, you've got assonance, you've got internal rhyme, half rhyme. The language is really knitted together. So I'm Thank you. Not surprised it, it maybe takes a, a bit of careful consideration about how you put all those sounds together and it, with a view to reading them aloud. Thank you. But it's so kind of you to say all those things. I don't think, though, I could write a poem and ever share it before I had read it aloud and read it aloud along the way and read it aloud as a whole because sometimes you the rhythm of one stanza might conflict with the rhythm of another. And in the course of reading it aloud and hearing it several times over, I sandpaper things differently and switch words around. And, and it's an absolute joy to do that. I love the craftsmanship of mm. it. I love that space where you just get lost in the poem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In the making of it. Yes. Yeah. Beautiful concentration. It's it's where I'm happiest. So it was lovely in the middle of, you know, that really gloomy spring of yeah. 2021 compared yeah. to the beautiful golden spring that we went into at the beginning of lockdown, oh, which was right. this yeah. extraordinary contrast. You know, we were we were thinking it wouldn't last very long, you know, maybe in no month or so That's we right. could go back to our lives but in the meantime let's enjoy the sunshine and you know pray for those yeah. we love and care about elsewhere but what else can we do we're here but by the time april 2021 came along when i wrote this we were all exhausted yeah. and it really did feel to me like the sparrow was a magical moment of visitation by this bird via the lineage that you speak of, mm -hmm. and also in conversation with other bird poems in my collection, in what was becoming the final version of A Whistling of Birds. In A Whistling of Birds, there's a, a robin that sings mm -hmm. yes. in Woburn Place, which is where W.B. Yeats lived. So Yeats is not mentioned in that poem, but Yeats is there as though he's listening in a yep. different era from his window. Mm -hmm. There are herons, there are egrets, there are hummingbirds. And I know you've done a podcast on yes. D.H. Lawrence's hummingbird. That's too. right. Yeah, yeah. So Lawrence is very important to the genesis of a whistling of birds, but he's not the only presiding spirit there are voices from so many other artists, musicians, and writers in the book. Georgie O'Keefe features in a poem called Everywhere Apricots from uh -huh. Santa yep. Fe, mm -hmm. which I visited in order to go to a conference about D.H. Lawrence, but also loved, oh, loved the fact that Georgie O'Keefe, who had inspired me so much as a young girl, had mm. also lived in New Mexico. And there are conversations with other poets who loved nature. In fact, there's a three-part poem 
which was originally three separate short poems. And then I saw that really they belonged together in one. And the poem as a whole is called Conversations. But the three parts are called Hawkweed Burning, which is really for Elizabeth Bishop, directed Mm -hmm. to her and thanking her for her inspiration as such a clear-eyed nature writer, someone who paid superbly close attention to the creatures. Mm -hmm. And then our doubtful art brings in John Berryman, Glenn Gould, and Emily Dickinson. Uh, Yeah. Dickinson and Berryman, of course, also writing wonderfully about nature as well. And then Deer Engraver, the final one, is for William Blake, really. He is the Deer Engraver of the title. So there are lots of poets on your poetic family tree. And Ted Hughes is in there too, isn't he? Yes, that, that's a poem called Dead Heron, Burnt Fox. That's right, yeah. And that's both the Irish artist Barry Cook mm-hmm. and Ted Hughes and his Thought Fox. The Thought Fox is a much gentler uh, version, really, of the dream he had of a the burnt and mutilated fox saying that he was killing them and he must stop. Yeah. And the very next day he stopped his English literature studies, right. left the English right. lit course and went on to, I think, is it anthropology? Yeah. Because he felt that the study of English literature was working against his creative instincts. Yeah. And Barry Cook was l- looking at the idea of a heron that had been given to him, a dead heron to paint, but his domestic duties were keeping him from painting the heron before it had begun to rot. And so both those images came together for me, two different parts of two artists saying, focus on the art, focus on the art. Don't let the art escape Mm. you. Yeah. And Hughes was famously influenced by D.H. Lawrence and his animal and nature poems. And Lawrence went to more exotic places, or exotic for us in England, and wrote about creatures, you know, as far abroad as Australia and I think South America. Central Central America, Mexico, and New Mexico in America. Okay. And then Hughes wrote a lot about English birds and beasts and fauna. I guess you've got access to both of those in your yes, collection, haven't you? Yes, you've got and all Hughes, kinds of critters. Yeah, Hughes was a, a very strong influence as well in my teenage years and at university. Mm-hmm. Seamus Heaney, Hughes, Jared Manley Hopkins, also beautiful nature, yeah. poetry, of course. And to return to the question of stammering, glory be to God for Dappled Things, is also a tongue twister of a poem. Ha, huh, yes. <laughs> and coming back to the form of Bede's Sparrow, so you've ended up with these lovely three-line verses. And, you know, you were saying it was cinematic just now. Like, for me, I experienced the, you know, the hop from each one verse to the other, a bit like the shift in the shot. You know, where mm-hmm. one minute we glimpse the the warriors feasting down below and then we get the the crossbeam bird's eye view head cocked to reckon it 
the mead hall din below. It's like we're going from shot to shot. I don't know if that's what you were intending, but that's how it comes across for me as a reader. I love that. I really do. And and for me also, I saw those narrow triple lines, the short stanzas, as um, as a bit like the cross beams themselves of a, of huh. a long yes. narrow. Hall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, not that it's in any way a concrete poem, and you don't need to know the yeah. the form to hear it. But all of those things come together in a very organic way for me. And I often change the initial form to something different. Some poems might come fully formed very quickly. Mm-hmm. There's a very short poem called In Nature in the collection, and that needed for me to be balanced as a scented poem, a little short scented poem. Yeah. And the, some of the poems are, as you said, um, you use the word agile, and yes, yeah. they sort of exploded or flying across the page. And that's because of the subject matter. Somehow it suits it. And yes. you can't really explain why. And maybe it doesn't matter to anyone else but me. But in the same way that a carpenter might carve a little secret symbol, you know, a mouse yeah. under the yeah, table, yeah, yeah. I think every poet has their own pleasures that they get from how they arrange what they do yeah absolutely and and folks if you read the book there's a wonderful variety of different forms like i think it's the bats and the bees they're they're flitting all over the page aren't they Mm, and then the whale is is luxuriating and um, sinking to the bottom of the ocean really yeah it's really amazing i suppose in terms of the form of the poems and what people see i would love to mention that a Whistling of Birds began as a, the collection A Whistling of Birds began as a collaboration with Scottish artist Douglas Robertson. Mm-hmm. And he has 12 very beautiful images in the book, yeah. including the cover image of Arctic terns flying across the cover. Mm-hmm. And there's a beautiful image of Bede Sparrow, very, very detailed uh, pencil stroke upon pencil stroke image of that bird's eye view looking Mm -hmm. down. So I was thrilled when he did that. We don't ever do anything prescriptive. We've worked back and forth for more than a dozen years now on some of these poems. And it all began with the poem about the whale, but it's wonderful where when he might do a drawing as he drew the Arctic turns. And then I wrote a poem, a very short poem in flight to answer the Arctic turns about their circumnavigation from pole to pole. Yeah. Yeah. But then with Bede Sparrow, I sent him Bede Sparrow and he was like, Oh, I know exactly what I'll do with that. And he did the, did the drawing. Wonderful. Wonderful. And again, you know, the interplay between the poems and the illustrations are it really just opens up another dimension to the book. And, I mean, we were saying earlier on, there was there was one line in the another poem that stood out to me where you said, so, so after all, there is wonder still. And I think in the poems and the illustrations, this is really a book of wonder. And it's very heartening to read that because, you know, we're in a little bit of a cynical, ironic age where a lot of time poets are, I don't know, maybe a little scared 
to go near wonder and joy. But you do that just beautifully in this book. And it's a very heartening book to read for that reason. Thank you again. Uh, I guess maybe sometimes it may seem careless or naive when there's so much threat to nature and so much threat to human life. There's a lot to despair about, um, but actually despair isn't really an option. I think we have to seek solutions to our environmental environmental crisis. We have to seek ways to protect and rebuild mm-hmm. the world we're in. And I firmly believe that we cannot repair things if we don't know what the wholeness and the beauty of the original of what is lost and what we're losing is about, which is why advocates like David Attenborough are so important, showing Mm -hmm. how extraordinary the natural world is and how much there is to wonder at and be awestruck by, but then also helping to sound the alarm and try to do what is needed to repair and to rescue. There's a line from William Blake where he speaks of laboring well the minute particulars. It's an injunction, actually. Mm -hmm. Labor well the minute particulars. And that's what I want to do is by looking at the minute particulars to fulfill a duty to care for the planet. So the poem you refer to about There Is Wonder Still is a poem called On First Spotting a Snake's Head Fritillary, Mm -hmm. which is a beautiful, beautiful flower I'd never seen before except in pictures by Charles Rennie Mackintosh. It's a beautiful watercolour called Fritillaria from Mm -hmm. Woolworthswick. I have a postcard up on my bookshelf behind me. And I loved that plant before I saw it in the wild because of his drawing, because of the art. And I wanted to see it. But when I saw it, I really wanted to cry. I was so happy to see this mm-hmm. beautiful, unusual cross-hatched flower in the rain down at Dartington. And, and that's what I mean by the wonder. You know, we've got to be open to the wonder and, and then fight to protect our wild spaces so that that wonder is not lost. So it, it doesn't only exist on the page but it exists in a living green world that we can live in and enjoy together. Yeah. And, you know, as you speak, you know, the the minute particulars, I think is something that you've really done throughout the book. And this poem in particular, I think you've, it's the precariousness that is key to the wonder, isn't it? In Bede's simile and, and the way you've expressed it. So maybe this would be a good point to listen to the poem again and um, savour those minute particulars. Thank you so much, Isabel. Thank you so much, Mark. It's been wonderful speaking to you. Bede's Sparrow by Isabel Dixon A sparrow flits through the hall 
its hubbub of feasting men, the meaty, fuggy smoke of them. A spell of warmth and hearth, post to post, high perch, a crossbeam bird's eye view. Head cocked to reckon it, the mead hall din below. Jocular glut, jostling stories, battle talk and rut. Crumbs among the rushes, toppled cup, the hanging cauldron's heat. Mark the sparrow's pause, now the slanting rain it tumbled from has ceased to beat. This quieting, breath upon a pipe, the click of deer horn dice. Sky suff, a sigh of flakes upon the thatch. Hound yawn, haunch twitch in the fire's glow. A fan of feathers, wing flex, flight. Bird blink, up and out, into the night. The mystery and purity of snow. Beads Sparrow by Isabel Dixon is from her collection A Whistling of Birds, published by Nine Arches Press. Isabel Dixon grew up in South Africa, where her debut Weather Eye won the Olive Schreiner Prize. She studied in Edinburgh and now lives in Cambridge. Her fifth collection, A Whistling of Birds, with illustrations by Douglas Robertson, is published by Nine Arches Press, who have also published A Fold in the Map, The Tempest Prognosticator, and Bearings. All of her collections are separately published in South Africa. She co-wrote and performed in The Titanic Centenary Show, The Debris Field, with Simon Barraclough and Chris McCabe, and enjoys collaborating with writers, artists, and composers. Her work is recorded for the Poetry Archive. A Mouthful of Air is a poetry podcast hosted by Mark McGuinness. New episodes are released every other Tuesday. If you enjoy the show and you'd like to help me reach more poetry lovers, you can do this by telling a friend about it or by taking a few seconds to leave a rating or even a brief review on Apple Podcasts. If you would like a full transcript of Every episode sent to you via email, including the poem text, you can sign up for this at amouthfulofair.fm slash subscribe. If you'd like to follow the show on social media, you can find all the links as well as a full episode archive at amouthfulofair.fm. The music and soundscapes for the show are created by Javier Whaler. Sound production is by Breaking Waves and visual identity by Irene Hoffman.
A Mouthful of Air is produced by the 21st Century Creative with support from Arts Council England via a National Lottery Project grant. Thank you for listening. I'll be back soon with another poem.